I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture by Langston Kahn, a New York City-based shamanic practitioner, with his talk given at the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference in London, May 2016, entitled, The Thing Which Knowledge Can't Eat. Gods, Archetypes, and the Mind. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode So, um, I think somewhat appropriately after uh, Gary's talk, I wanted to start my talk with a little bit of shade from Jung that he was delivering to uh, scientific materialists when he gave a lecture at the Zofingia Society uh, in 1895, actually before he um, became involved with uh, psychoanalysis with Freud. So this is the quote from you. The principle of inertia innate to humankind permits us to comprehend why nowadays, in the age of the hypercritical mind, we still see educated people in every walk of life, and not least among them physicians and natural scientists, who are not ashamed to proclaim their adherence to materialism, thus bearing witness to their own intellectual poverty. To be sure, one cannot blame these people too much, for they are only aping a well-known model, After all, we cannot demand that everyone should think for himself. (laughs) So, um, when I stumbled upon that, I found it very interesting um, in the context that I think often in modern psychoanalysis um, and psychology as a field as a whole, um, union psychology is sometimes used as an excuse so to speak, to approach um, the numinous and the divine and deities uh, as mental constructs. That that it gives permission, oh, we can work with these things, but only in this very safe psychological framework. So I thought it was very interesting um, that even before Jung became involved with psychoanalysis, he always had this bent towards um, very systematically attacking 
scientific materialism as a force he saw as actually literally he says poisoning the minds of, of, of youth in his culture. Um, and I think today another reason that psychology is so based in uh, scientific materialism is also in part um, in an era of like, managed care where insurance companies put great pressure on psychotherapists uh, to use empirically validated treatments for resolving specific problems and symptoms like this another added pressure that um, ends up sort of castrating maybe the more cosmic potentialities of working with these numinous forces that were so present in a lot of Jung's work. Um, and I think it's interesting also then to look at how when the break between Jung and Freud occurred, a lot of people say, oh, it was the um, supernatural that, that caused the break, as, as uh, Gary spoke about very eloquently. But um, I think what's interesting uh, when you look at that moment is how what Jung was finding was that as he was using Freud's analysis to um, unpackage and unmask, so to speak, the world's myths, um, always getting back to that core um, drama around the libido, he found that he was still, he was becoming enthralled with these myths and he, he didn't have his own myth. He started asking this question of where can I find my myths, where can I find my soul? And that's what led him to uh, write the Red Book which was, you know, before he was writing it as a book, was simply his own experiments with active imagination, exploring his own interior landscape, but also engagement with these numinous forces that were coming into his life at the time. Um, and so I guess to step back a bit, um, I think it's just interesting to notice that when Jung writes the Red Book, he doesn't use any of the psychological frameworks that he had available to him at the time to describe what he was experiencing. Uh, so rather than put framing what he's experiencing in the context of archetypes or even psychological analysis, instead he is very much just almost using the language of literature or drama or poetry or myth to describe what's occurring to him as he's engaging with these, these entities that are coming into his life or these internal images as well that are, that are popping up in his dreams and, and his experiences. Um, and later on, he then creates concepts and categories from his experience to try to aid others in navigating their own psyches, their own souls. Uh, but and, and in doing so, he, he tries to fit that into the framework of psychoanalysis. But I think when you look at the legacy of him trying to create these concepts like um, archetypes or, or like the Puer archetype, um, he, he uh, in doing so, the, the legacy that gets left is further ob obfuscation and confusion and justification to come further ingrained in scientific materialism even when engaging with these numinous forces rather than what he intended. Um, and I don't think we know exactly what he intended, but he does say later in life that people have misunderstood the archetypes. 
he makes that statement. That's a very interesting statement. Um, and so in seeing how in the Red Book, which, you know, even when he made commentary uh, and edited his later commentary in the Red Book, like decade, a decade later, he still never used those psychological concepts that he had spent his life developing to describe what he was experiencing. And so I think, for me, what I think is useful in trying to extract how Jung's work with the Red Book can reflect on how we might engage with these numinous forces today is rather than putting his work in the context of psychology and trying to categorize and compartmentalize it, putting it in the context of um, indigenous shamanic practices and indigenous shamanic cosmologies. Um, so I think one way of doing that is to really just first of all just talk about a few highlights of his experiences. So like for those of you who haven't read the Red Book or explored it, this is a really sort of terrifying and harrowing journey through the underworld and the realms of the dead that, that Jung is taking us on that really goes into the heart of madness and eventually out the other side. Um, this includes things like the prophet Elijah appearing to you and screaming at him that I am not in your head, you know, I am not a mental construct, essentially. Um, it includes uh, him battling with a bull god and, and shrinking that bull guy down and then uh, replanting him as a seed and raising up the old horn god from him. It involves him uh, hordes of Anabaptist dead hurtling through his kitchen. Um, and then he starts having an argument with, asking them, uh, what, they're talking about going to Jerusalem, going to this holy place, and he starts talking to them about, so, so can I go with you? It sounds like a, a good place. And they, they, uh, they, they say, no, you have a body, you can't come with us. And then, then he starts, finally he just, as they're, they're still in his kitchen, invading his space, overwhelming him, this horde of dead people, he um, asked them, why are you still stuck here? Why are you restless dead? And they respond to him in that moment, you have to tell us why we're still restless dead. That's what we're here for. Um, and so then, um, after some heated discussion, he, he, the, the, he finally tells them that they can't rest because they did not fully uh, live their lives. He says, he ends the conversation actually by saying, let go, Damon, you did not live your, anima, your animal. Um, and so in doing this, and calling out these dead people who, who are stuck on this earthly plane because they did not follow their animal, their instinct, their, their primal selves, that Jung was also often very interested in getting back and, and integrating into the Western um, ego, the, the, the sort of animal self, he, he then actually is committed to a mental institution in that moment because police come, hearing him making all of this clatter and noise, and after he's talking to them about what's going on, after like a psychologist gives him a very short evaluation, he's like, well, you're crazy. And he's diagnosed with a temporary religious insanity. <laughs> so at that moment, the... His, his visions, his experiences, the spirits that are coming into his life uh, don't end, of course. The, and, and so in, in moments, he's not even aware that he's no longer in his home um, as he's engaging with these forces. And uh, I 
think that rather than continuing on in what's happening in the Red Book, I think it's interesting to go to what he says much later on after he's come out of this experience. Um, actually, I think near the end of his life, he says, had I not been able to absorb the overpowering force of the original experiences, I would have gone mad. Um, which he states in his epilogue to the Red Book. And I think there is, similar to what Kai was talking about, is one of the key ways that Jung's experience, or maybe a, a little doorway in, that we can parallel to uh, shamanic indigenous experiences, is that when people are having these initiatory crises in these shamanic cultures, it is not about just going somewhere deep and engaging with this crazy stuff and then I survive, awesome. Like, it's essentially um, a rigorous stretching and, and ultimately breaking of a person, a guiding of a person towards that which they think they will die if they face. And then once they face that thing, they do die. And in that moment, they, they move through that gate of initiation, if they're lucky. Um, and so, but to move through that gateway of initiation, it requires interpreting correctly the symbolic language that the helping spirits are using to communicate with the shaman. So in, I think it's, it's very interesting how Jung makes the point just very intuitively that if I had not been able to absorb this experience, I would have been overpowered by it. And I think in that, using that phrase absorb, he's not saying, he doesn't use the word assimilate, he doesn't use, use the word like, put this back into the context of the framework of my life. He, he's talking about the ability to interpret what's being shown to him and recreate himself anew in the context of those messages that he's receiving. Um, and so I think it's interesting to then examine how did Jung, as a Westerner, completely divorced from any context for the experiences that he was having, in that moment, managed to accurately interpret the language of his helping spirits, um, if you wish to call the, the forces he was experiencing that, and pass through this gate of madness successfully. And, um, of course, he was, you know, as, as we've already discussed somewhat, very exposed to many different occult traditions, um, and, uh, and many indigenous traditions as well. But if you read his writing, he often has a fear of what he calls becoming too black, um, which is what he meant when, when he said that was, was essentially going native. Uh, he had this fear of getting lost in a context in which everything that he was experiencing was just completely accepted. So he simultaneously was taking this these events at face value, but also having extreme skepticism and extreme fear of losing himself within these experiences. So there's this constant tension throughout. Um, but I think that's actually somewhat what saves him, in a sense, and allows him, um, where, where some people might have come to this experience and thought, I am God, I'm a prophet, I have all these messages delivered to the people, and we've seen some people in Tulsa that do have these visionary experiences and, and do go that route of creating a cult for themselves and around themselves. But because he always kept that skepticism, and sometimes it was doubt, but sometimes it was that healthy skepticism that was a constant 
questioning of everything he was experiencing while also accepting what he was experiencing. So there is that sense of rather than doubting that the experience was happening, he was doubting his interpretation of the experience and that his experience was special. So he was constantly, um, or something he actually says is, when the voices speak to you, when anything comes, you must engage with them as literally as you can. And then the reflection is in another tone, in another mindset, but the engagement has to be literal. And so I think that's one of the things that actually makes Jung quite unique in Western culture, that he was able to hold that bridge while having these experiences of simultaneously <coughs> accepting as literal the visions that he was experiencing and engaging with them as such, while also then setting aside separate time for reflection. Which, if you talk with um, many people that, many uh, spirit workers in various traditions, there's often a bisecting of the vision itself that you're receiving, which you interpret or analyze as little as possible, then the uh, interpretation you make of that vision, and then the action you take based on that interpretation, and then the allowing of the world to reflect back to you if that interpretation was correct, if that action you took was correct, in terms of how the world responds to that action. So I think you, in, in taking these experiences at face value, but then also um, keeping his reflection there, but compartmentalized, actually saved himself, in a sense, from total madness, or, or, or just total inability to engage what was happening to him. Um, but of course it also was that that uh, source of that tension. Um, another, so I think then that gets distorted somewhat later on um, in terms of when he tries to categorize his experiences that he's having later on for people to use in their own psychological explorations and their own explorations of the soul. Um, it allows people to fall into the trap uh, which he specifically stated is not what he was trying to do, of narrowing Jungian psychology into a sort of astrology of the soul. Where like, oh yes, I'm fitting into this archetype now, so that means this is happening. Or oh yes, I'm fitting into this archetype now, so I should do this. Rather than using the tools that he used to be able to engage as literal with the spirit experiences he was having and interpret them and then take action on them in his life. Um, so he was, he was constantly obsessed with the idea that, that his job was to be a ferryman to the underworld and back. Not just saying, uh, not just sort of eschewing the day world, but going into this underworld space and then bringing it back for the people. Um, and, so, and, and I think on top of that, what really helped him in this moment, which also parallels, I think, spirit workers of many cultures, is that he always let the psychic events happen of their own accord that he was experiencing. And this is something he talks about a lot in his introduction to um, The Secret of the Golden Flower. Uh, 
and he's talking about the, the, the realization of the significance of letting things happen of their own accord. Um, just allowing the spontaneous emergence of figures, the stepping back, and the attempting to st take stock and to follow what ensues. So rather than trying to shape these experiences that he was having them and fit them into his psychological framework, what he was doing in those moments was actually trying to just keep up with the spiritual experiences he was having. And, and if you read the Red Book, what he's constantly doing is rather than uh, saying, okay, this spirit is doing this, that means they fit, are fitting into this archetypal symbology, so I should think about, I should read this myth again. And instead, what he's doing is he's constantly just coming from a place of total humility and ignorance and asking the spirits themselves to explain to him what the hell is going on in any given moment, which um, ultimately finds them very wise thing to do because they do it inevitably, the more that he asks the spirits to explain to him what's going on, um, the more that the spirits then transform and move and shift and allow him to detach and disidentify from the ego that's so uncertain and terrified of what's going on and, and connect with the larger self that is able to contain this experience and transform it and move through it as a fluid, organic organism in process. So, and I think that that's another interesting um, aspect of Jung that people don't necessarily talk, or at least I have read a lot, um, talking about with the break with uh, Freud in that Jung had this uh, conception of the self that Freud didn't necessarily um, adhere to in terms of, and for Jung this, um, the self was very much not just, not just um, the self in terms of a separate um, sort of Cartesian, I think therefore I am, entity separate from everyone else around them, but the self as the innate connection to divinity, as that, as that larger self and presence that contains all of these contradictory forces that is actually a gateway through the self, through the body, to this vast cosmology of spirits that we're inhabiting. Um, and so I think in that, in that containing of the self, it opens up a gateway past the rational, scientific, materialist, Western standards that Peter was talking about somewhat of just the only goal being a producing member of society from psychology, and instead the goal of this connection to this larger self that, that this, this unraveling of all the stories getting in the way between you and your innate connection to divinity and authenticity um, as a goal, a sort of, a, 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 I want to say superhuman, but that's not really the word I'm looking for. It's more this, this to be a human being in addition to this concept is someone who has come into relationship with the vast ecosystem of spirits that are inhabiting the world with you, all of your relationships. And I think to, to me that is the union definition of, of the self, so to speak, um, though he didn't use those exact words. Um, and so I think what, what I think is interesting now when you go back to archetypes and how they're used today, again, as categories so often, particularly in occultist communities, we often see archetypes used as an excuse to sort of not necessarily pay attention to the protocol or the history of individual deities or spirits to just be able to say, oh, it's a, it's a crone spirit, or, or so I'm going to treat it this way. Um, 
uh, rather than like um, I think Morpheus Ravenna. I remember reading something she wrote about that the uh, the the differentiation between the a crone figure and say a crone figure as an aspect of the Morrigan that if you saw that figure it would mean that you were about to die. So there's a big differentiation between oh I'm gonna go engage with this loving maternal crone figure who's giving me all this wisdom versus oh I'm actually seeing an aspect of the that's the protocol that when I see this imagery the interpretation of that in this specific cultural context that I'm entering into is that it's a warning that I'm about to die. Um, so. A quote that Jung makes about the archetypes is that the archetype is a psychoid factor that belongs to the invisible, ultraviolet end of the psychic spectrum. It seems to be probable that the real nature of the archetype is not capable of being made conscious, that it is transcendent. Archetypes are images and at the same time emotions. One can speak of an archetype only when two aspects collide. When it is only an image, it is merely a word like picture, like a corpuscle with no electric charge. It is then of little consequence, just a word and nothing more. But if the image is charged with numinosity, that is psychic energy, then it becomes dynamic and will produce consequences. It is a great mistake in practice to treat an archetype as if it were a mere name, word, or concept. It is far more than that. It is a piece of life, an image connected with the individual by the bridge of emotion. So again, rather than categories, what you is talking about, and I think which is much more closer to how indigenous cosmologies engage with energies that you might call or parallel to Jungian archetypes, are these cosmic forces that are in a sense perhaps older than the gods, or related to the gods, in the sense that they are the, the sort of source code or building blocks of the universe. These, these things that are that we can only, they're so vast that when we engage them in our internal landscape as humans, we can only engage with them as our inner version of that vast cosmic force that is constantly shifting and changing as we grow in our capacity to relate to this vast cosmic force. Um, so, I think, and I think that one of the, the common uh, well, one of the common paths around between shamanism and Jungian psychology is, is the sense that there's the this sense that humans are not necessarily at the center of it all. That there's this sense of this larger, vast network that we're tapping through through our sense of individuation, rather than an aim to become the apex of evolution or in control of these vast forces of chaos. It's more that we're working and striving to come into relationship of this vast network through the engagement with these energies. Um, and so I guess I just, the, the last thing I just wanted to talk about with um, archetypes in a sense is that I think there's a, there's a danger sometimes in becoming too fixated or identified with any one archetype and, and that there's a danger in using archetypes as a shortcut to relate to the gods in a sense that the gods have the, are, are very much tied up with these human stories over time and they have their own agency so to speak and they have their own protocol 
with good reason. Um, because, and in this, in Jung's uh, experiences with his spirits, he was in a culture where he was left without that protocol and forced to just completely engage on his own with these vast numinous entities. So, for him, what he came back to continuously and what allowed him to engage with these forces that can be quite dangerous without that protocol was this willingness to ask. And I guess that's what I would like to, to end the, the, the talk with today is just an invitation in our own experiences with these energies, these vast luminous forces, rather than trying to box them into one category, the willingness to simply ask them what's going on, and then to interpret those actions of what's going on, and then based on those interpretations to take action, and even if that action is to ask another question, and then from those actions to finally come to a concrete thing that you're doing in the world, to notice how the world responds to that action and based on that response, to then go back to the energies that you're engaging with. And I think that is one of the first steps in engaging with these forces for, for transformation. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Langston Kahn, entitled, The Thing Which Knowledge Can't Eat, Gods, Archetypes, and the Mind, presented at the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference in London, 2016. For more, please visit Langston's website, OccupyYourHeart.com. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org, or the conference website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T.org. Papers from the conference, Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult, 2016, have been collected together in Volume 9 of The Fenris Wolf, edited by myself and Carl Abrahamson. You can find The Fenris Wolf Volume 9 at our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated.
Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Soft Explosion by White Stains from the album Somewhat Lost Horizon.